let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Darling. I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb, and it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Today's episode is really exciting. They're all really exciting. But this guest, he's an absolute ledge, as my husband would say. He's a legend of the unscripted TV industry. He is someone who I've had the pleasure of working with before. Someone who I look up to and they have a new book. And they are just someone who I'm so excited to have on Getting Curious. And we can kind of go on like a fun, lighter exploration of things that make me curious, honey. So welcome to the show, Fenton Bailey of World of Wonder, where we get to ask him, how did you change reality TV as we know it? If you've ever enjoyed an episode of Drag Race, you have this week's guest to thank. As one of the co-founders of the production company World of Wonder, he has changed television and American culture as we know it. And we're not just talking about the drag race empire. World of Wonder is the producing force behind projects like The RuPaul Show, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Party Monster, so good, Becoming Chaz and Being Chaz, Catch and Kill, the podcast tapes, and a little Netflix show called Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. Okay, now wait, can I just say from that uh, really quick, everyone listening, our gorgeous listeners, like, hi, how are you? Miss you all the time. If you do not watch Drag Race, I just 
don't know what to do with you. I just really don't know what to do. And you should go back. And it's actually really exciting that you have a plethora of content to just like sink your teeth into for so long. But Benton Bailey is an award winner producer and director who has worked with the likes of a RuPaul, Britney Spears, Miss Monica Lewinsky, honey. He founded World of Wonder in 1991 with Randy Barbado. Their show, RuPaul's Drag Race, has won dozens of Emmy Awards. They were executive producers on the 2021 biopic, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which won not one, but two Oscars. Their documentaries have won acclaim for their focus on society's oddballs and outliers. Today, we are asking Fenton, how are you creating a world of wonder? Hi, Fenton. Hi, it's so great to see you. Thank you for having me. I have looked up to you for such a long time. I adore you so much. And I'm so honored that I got to work with you and make getting curious with you. And I'm so excited that you're on the podcast side of things. And it's always such a pleasure to see your fucking face. Getting curious in World of Wonder, they're, they're like sisters. They're literally sisters. It's all about curiosity and wonder, right? I love that that is just things that we love. We can't help that we have good taste. <laughs> exactly. We just can't. <laughs> Okay, so, but let's start in the 80s, dip our toe into some queer history. It's the early 80s. We're at the Pyramid Club in New York City. A rising star by the name of RuPaul takes to the stage. What's it like to be in the audience? Randy and I, we would skip film school, uh, our editing classes, and we would go to the Pyramid. And it was, it was kind of like... Such a legendary place. It was kind of a dive bar. You know, it was this railroad place, had a long bar, kind of stank, you know, stale (laughs) beer and cigarettes. And then a tiny stage all the way at the end. And Rue is about, you know, six foot plus, seven foot in the hair, heels, wig, etc. And that stage can hardly have had like two inches of headroom once he was on it, you know. But he was such a commanding presence and we saw so many queens there, including Rue and, you know, Lady Bunny and John Sex. And you know, the weird thing is, only in retrospect do you know that it was a magical time. At the time, we were just like, you know, the drinks are too expensive or, you know, <laughs> complaining. But it was incredible. It really was. I can just imagine that with these people and these entertainers, it is just like such a fucking, like, Energy and also to sidebar, where was it? Avenue A, just south of Seventh Street, just by Tompkins mm. Square Park. And Alphabet City in the early eighties was kind of a no-go area. It was just before the crack epidemic, but it was very run down and was known as Alphabet City. And there were all these burned-out buildings and abandoned lots. It was kind of, it was kind of a spectacular dump, but it was affordable. It was an affordable place. You know, you could get an apartment for a few hundred dollars a month and. And Randy and I, we met and we fell in love and we moved in together and we were in this sixth floor walk-up apartment where a lot of the people who ran the pyramid uh, lived as well. So it was kind of a cool building. So you and Randy are just like young and in love and you're in New York City and it's like the 80s or wait, 80. Yes, it's 1982, um, 83 and 84. (laughs) So... Like, what's the significance of this place and this cultural moment? Because it is significant. I want to know what your answer is, but I'll tell you. I guess I'd never seen drag like it before in my life. It wasn't like, it wasn't like some like it hot, you know? It was like everything from pop culture, uh, TV, everything sort of thrown in and then sort of regurgitated. It was this sort of taking the piss 
of popular culture and celebrity, but also celebrating it and loving it. I'd just never seen anything like it before. And I, I just thought, this is it. And Randy felt the same way too, that this was real art, but not in an arty sense, real, like really great, entertaining, funny, incisive stuff. And I mean, you know, just seeing John Sachs there, who was like a Liberace kind of queen with his hair up. And I remember he'd often have the boa. This is, you know, decades before Britney Spears, he'd have a boa on stage. I mean, it was just like, jaw-dropping. I'd just never seen, maybe I'd led a sheltered life. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life and felt it was something. You know what? I'd never seen anything like it since, as a kid, I'd watched Batman on TV, you know, the, the, the TV series, because that was crazy camp and colorful and over the top and sort of trashy. But something about both those things really just made me resonate like a gong. For me, I feel like you had such a like bustling like art and queer scene and like little did everyone know that they were about to like trauma bond in such an intense pandemic-y way but you're still in your youth and you're like having fun but it was so serious at the same time so when you said like what did it mean for you I just wrote down like trauma bonding but like I didn't understand like the significance of that until I was a lot older you're so right because AIDS was just about to appear. I remember maybe a few weeks before I left for America, and I'd never been to America in my life, but I was moving to America in 1982. And I read the first article about grid. And I just remember a friend saying, just be careful. And it all sort of happened. But here's the weird thing. I think our focus was in spite of this apocalypse going on around us, there was this determination and defiance to make stuff and to put on a show. I, it's so funny looking back on it, we don't have a lot of the memories of the awfulness of it and the suffering and the death. I mean, that was a constant. But what lives in the memory is this sort of like, we're going to do this, we're going to do stuff. And it was just... So I guess that is trauma bonding. Do you know what I mean? But it, it was almost like we would blank it out because I think if you took it in, it could just be overwhelming and it could crush you. Of course, yeah. Now, I also wrote down, at the time, did your friends in this era in Queens, like, did they ever feel unsafe in the city? Was there like, because at the time you have like Reagan in office and like it is the beginning of like grid and everything, but did... Like, were people talking about, like, hate crimes? Were people talking about, like, how were people talking about, like, queer liberation and, like, queer safety and access to livelihood then and now? In the East Village, the landlord of our apartment building had this drop-dead beautiful son. Um, I can't remember how old he was, but he was absolutely gorgeous. And also in the neighborhood, there was this other kind of group of guys and they were really tough and they were kind of, I guess I'd say criminals. Anyway, they mm-hmm. once, uh, walking across Tompkins Square Park, they once, me and Randy were in our sort of paisley long shirts and boxer shorts, you know, and I remember they once threatened me and Randy and Randy just turned around and like, I, I can't remember what he said. It's like, fuck off before people know you're queer kind of. I was like, Randy, he was so like, tough and confrontational 
And they kind of just disappeared. Of course, you know, there were beatings and, and hate crimes. And Michael Stewart was an artist, a graffiti artist on the scene. I remember this quite clearly. And he was in the pyramid all the time. He was African-American and he was beaten up and killed by the police. It was at Astor Place. It was one of the first kind of, for me, realizing that, you know, this was a truly dangerous time. But, you know, overall, there was a feeling of safety. It's just that violence could strike you at any time, you know. Mm. I, I was once on the phone because this was pre-cell phones. I was once on the phone, you know, in those little phone booths and someone came up to me and stuck a knife in my throat and said, give me your money. And I was on the phone to someone and I said, oh, um, I've got to go now. I'm being mugged. <laughs> and um, it, I gave him my money, which was like, I don't know. I had eight bucks because I was going to go to a the movie theater to see Carell. I do remember that. So ah. I had to give him my money and I didn't get to see Carell. So... I'm so glad they didn't kill you, Fenton. Me, me too. Yeah. We would not yeah. have had one of this generation's greatest and foremost unscripted and scripted <laughs> producers of our time, darling. Oh, sweetie. Thank you. It's true. Okay, so wait, now, can we just talk about Screen Age, you guys? Who gave you permission to be such a good writer? It's so fucking good. Screen Age is your second book, and you take us through TV history from the first TV station in upstate New York in 1928 to last year's Oscars broadcast, which was such an uneventful affair. But rather than focusing on primetime programming, you explore infomercials, which we are obsessed with here, and you know that I love an infomercial, public access stations, Juliet Childs, Give It To Me, home shopping networks, music videos, and beyond. Why did you decide to center these types of programming? Well, you know, I, I kind of wrote the book because it seemed to me that TV has changed my life. I grew up watching TV. And one day I was like, how come all the books about TV seem to be bashing it? You know, there seems to be a huge literary tradition of saying that, you know, 57 channels and nothing's on, age of disinformation, that we're all being turned into morons. TV has been seen as this demon force, especially by writers and in journalism and in print. And I was like, this isn't true at all. It is a magical technology that has completely transformed our lives. And it just felt that no one had stopped to say, hang on a second, this stuff is amazing. And I know now, you know, we've got premium TV, but really, I think that actually the, the TV that's really had the most cultural impact has been the, the least respected genres in this least respected medium, like infomercials, like reality TV, uh, and especially public access, you know? To me, they're the life force of TV. They are TV's original, they are TV the way TV should be, rather than TV trying to imitate Hollywood or imitate the movies. Because I think people sometimes think that all TV is, is a lesser version of the big screen. You know, Norma Desmond, you know, I still am big, it's the pictures that got small. It's wrong. TV is not a version of the big screen. It is not the movies. It's a totally different thing. Oh, honey, the weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I needed to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. 
Honey, these premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. They are giving you washable silk tops. I love the quality of their fabrics. It really is stunning. Oh my God. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash curious. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. So I love that, that you're like, hold on a minute. This is actually like really fierce and also deserves like a respectful exploration because it's really interesting the way that it has interacted and progressed through culture. So like, let's look at it. So I love that. What did you take away from studying infomercials, public access stations, home shopping networks, like, and especially their evolution from 1928 until now, like, what did you take away from that and what its relationship is to our TV history and our American cultural history? Well, I think infomercials, you know, they were sort of a genius byproduct of deregulation, of Reagan's deregulation. And they let people on the air who would never be allowed on regular network TV, you know, like, Susan Powder or Richard Simmons. I mean, these were like larger-than-life characters, but non-conforming characters. They didn't perform in traditional gender ways, for one thing. You know, Richard Simmons is the campus thing you could ever imagine. And yet, he was so entertaining and so compelling. And similarly, Susan Powder, they were disrespected because they were just selling you stuff. But what we were really getting out of the whole experience was the force of their personality. And I don't think it really wasn't until YouTube came along that we would have access to such strong characters in such an undiluted way. My point being that almost anything that was interesting to someone queer like me was sort of regulated out of existence, wasn't allowed to exist on television. Similarly, public access, you know, When I grew up in the UK, there were three channels. Yeah, three channels. And the idea that anyone who wants to make a TV show could make their own show and have it air, that's what public access is in America. That was an extraordinary idea. It was like heresy, the idea that anyone could make their own TV show. And as a result, you had all these characters making their own TV shows who, again, you'd never see on network because no advertiser would support them. And and these shows were sort of outrageous and revealed a whole group of characters who are on the margins or invisible. And then I think reality TV 
delivered on that even more. You know, it allowed all the people who've been excluded from society, from the culture, to be seen. I think especially in the era of the 80s and the 90s and prior, watching TV at home or in an intimate space where you felt comfortable was like a pretty big thing because you weren't watching TV on your phone like out you know, on public transport or like at a park or like, like, so letting someone onto your TV screen, like into your home was like a much more intimate act. Like, I think because you didn't have as many choices. So it's really interesting to think about, you know, Richard Simmons and like some of Americans, like first interactions with someone who is non-conforming. If you didn't know someone like that in your real life and like, that's actually kind of significant and quite important. Yeah. And, and queer people especially were, they would only show up, you know, as murder victims or people who killed themselves or just scandalous, shadowy figures. And that was why, as a kid, seeing Quentin Crisp on TV in this made-for-TV drama was such a radical, life-changing thing for me to see this incredibly swishy, sissy, unapologetic figure who wasn't in any way weak was in fact incredibly brave and incredibly strong and just had zero fucks to give. And in fact, it was at the end of that play, that play that was made on television, when he was almost assaulted in the park and he was like, do your worst. You know, I'm one of the stately homos of England. And then he walks off because everyone's just, they don't know what to do. They're not going to throw a punch. And the card said, you know, Quentin Chris moved to New York. And I said, yes, that's what I have to do. I just have to get there some way, somehow, you know. Ah, it gave you a roadmap, honey. It did. It absolutely did. So in the book you explore televangelism, I had like the guiltiest crush on like Joel Osteen in the 90s and like early 2000s. (laughs) Like I just noticed like his wavy hair and his shoulder pads, like, oh my God, his big pearly whites, honey. I was just feeling him. But but, like very shamefully so. We just learned on Getting Curious this month about televangelism and how much it's influenced U.S. politics and how much they're entangled. How have televangelists influenced you in your work? Randy and I, in the East Village, we would watch the PTL Club we loved it, and we loved it because we loved Tammy Faye. We're not, to be honest, or no great surprise, not particularly Christian, um, but Tammy Faye was amazing. And we even went on a, when we were, Renny and I had a band, the Fabulous Pop-Tarts. Ah, oh, it was called the Fabulous Pop-Tarts? Yes, and you know what Graham Norton said to me the other day? He said, well, no one else called you that. Because <laughs> we, we added Fabulous. So we went on tour, And one of our stops was like a a pilgrimage to PTL. And it was just after the scandal. So the place was a a low ebb. But Tammy Faye was like such an inspiration. And Tammy Faye obviously was a very atypical televangelist. She wasn't preaching Uh. fire and damnation. It was obvious she loved the gays. And Tammy's always said herself that she was a drag queen. So that movie made me cry so Mm. hard. It was so good. Like, it moved me to my queer bones. How long did that project take you guys? Well, we first met Tammy in the basement of our house. We were in LA and we were doing a show for Channel 4 UK. 
was called TV Pizza. And so it was clips from public access shows with interviews with people. And we had Tammy on the show. And we also had Sister Paula, a televangelist from Seattle, trans televangelist from Seattle. Ah. And we thought we better make sure that they don't bump into each other because Tammy might be offended. It might just, you know, be a problem for Tammy. But of course, you know, the way everything works out, they just bump into each other on the stairs and they just became the best of friends, laughing it up, having a fabulous time. So it was sort of around then that we began to think, oh my gosh, it would be great to make a film about Tammy Faye, a documentary. And her husband, her second husband was in prison as well. And we knew he didn't, he didn't mind the gays, but he didn't really embrace. And we knew we had Tammy basically for 12 months. And we went out to Palm Springs where she was living and said, will you let us make a film about you? And she said, yes. We, we went out to Palm Springs to talk about it. And she came to the door, camera ready. It was a long time after making that film. That was 2000 with Rue narrating, doing the voiceover. It wasn't what, 21 years later that the, the movie got made. Jessica is so... She's not playing. She is Tammy Faye, right? She was Tammy Faye, honey. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And she got it. You know, she was like, it seems to me we should be talking about Tammy's radical acts of love, not about her makeup, you know, because people are to this day obsessed with her makeup. But of course, her makeup was also her drag. It was her suit. It was the way it was her look. It was her, it was her brand. Yeah. And it's kind of fabulous. I love like a big old look. So wait, what do you see as being the connections between the televangelism and queer culture? Is it just like basically like that she was like a low-key drag queen? Yes. I mean, I'm not sure that a lot of televangelism has a lot of affinity or in common with queer culture, but I do think it's a unique genius applica- It's the killer application of TV because I think TV is really good as a medium at selling you things at selling you can openers or a whole new you. And that's what televangelism is trying to sell you, is sort of transformation or, or salvation or whatever you want to call it. But essentially, it's like a friend. It's television's hanging out with you. And, and so you get to see, even if I don't agree with 99.9% of the beliefs of televangelists, you know, you have your Joel Osteen and you have these characters that are really front and center that come into your life and and sort of, make you feel that maybe you aren't alone in the Mm. world, you know? Yeah, it's like warm hugs, like warm hugs through the TV screen. Yes, you know, uh, Robert Tilton, uh, a terrible, in the sense of criminal, uh, televangelist, (laughs) he used to say, touch your television set right now. And and Rue adapted that as his own saying, (laughs) this idea of people at home touching their television sets to receive, you know. Yes. All of the documentary products that Randy and you and World of Wonder and the team have produced are just intimate portraits of individuals. Introduce us to some of the characters who you featured or people who you featured. Yeah, Tammy Faye changed our lives, but we made a lot of films for HBO thanks to Sheila Nevins, who herself should be the subject of a documentary. I mean, just this fabulous, larger-than-life character who ran the documentary division of HBO for years. And... She, for example, sat us down with Monica Lewinsky uh-huh. and we made a film, Monica in Black and White. And now this was before, Monica's always been Monica, but society has re-embraced her. And this was a long time before that. 
but it was just Monica talking with law students. And Monica was so obviously so smart and lovely and obviously also traumatized by what mm. she'd been through. But, but it was just incredible that she'd survived. And, and like Tammy in some respects, I mean, what they'd both been through would have, I don't know, just, just hard to imagine surviving that. Just a public thrashing of epic proportion. Yeah. Again and again and again. And neither of them bitter, but, but just fabulous, beautiful creatures, you know, who have so much to, to tell us. I am glad that Monica is alive for her, like, comeback, though, because she's like, people love her. I love, like, the admiration is strong for Monica Lewinsky yeah. for me. The film, you know, the Television Critics Association that is held every year, and HBO launched the film the same time as they launched the 9-11 In Memoriam film that they mm. did. So this was the same room that Rudolph Giuliani walked out into. Oh. And, and oh my gosh, it was an ugly experience. You know, the, the reporters were really awful to Monica. They were like, one of them even said, why didn't you just curl up and die? You know, in contrast to when Rudolph Giuliani came out, he got a standing ovation because he was seen as this great hero of 9-11, which, of course, we now know he was not. So, you know. In time, all is revealed or whatever they say. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. Because, like, his fucking bronzer melting ass, everybody, you know, knows. <laughs> so what cultural connections, if any, do you see between some of the subjects that you've covered over the years? Like Britney Spears, like Andy Warhol, like what are the other things? I think Randy and I are just attracted to outsiders. I mean, we feel like outsiders. I think, you know, the queer experience is that you do feel like an outsider. But weirdly, I think everybody feels like an outsider, really. And that, that, that queer experience or that trauma isn't unique to LGBTQ plus IA. It's actually, everybody feels that way. And I think we're also drawn to people who are judged or, or misunderstood or both. Um, and as a result, sort of exiled. And I feel that Britney, especially during the height of her popularity, yes, the fans bought the records, but Britney could not catch a break. She was just slagged off again and again and again. And we made this film about her and as she was getting ready to do this residency in Vegas. And, you know, everybody said it would be a failure and we're like making fun of her, but it was a singular success. And the thing about Britney is she's like, she says it herself, she's just a normal person. And so her being misunderstood is that no one will accept that she's not this sort of sexually turned on pop tart. She's this great stage presence, but off stage she's just a normal boring person and no one will let her be that. She does seem like she likes to show a little bit of skin nowadays on the gram from time to time, but I love that for her. Live your fucking yeah. life, Brittany. I want to show my titties yeah. on the gram sometimes. I do. And I do. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes I just want that I validation. Can't. We all want it sometimes. We can't help yes. it. Yeah, I hope she's okay. I really I love I really B Spears do. so much. Sometimes in my stand-up show, I just, I say, everybody hold up two hands. We're sending love to Brittany. Yeah, it's mm. good. Touch the television set right now. Yeah, touch the television set. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, 
I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Okay, so obviously you're a storyteller, honey. You're a producer extraordinaire. You're an author, honey. But in this book, you tell some of your own stories. One of the ones that I was the host surprised about, North Korea, honey. Like, we need to know, like, that was not on my bingo card. Like, Fenton goes to North Korea. But alas, here we are. Tell us the who, what, where, when, why, and how of Fenton goes to North Korea, honey. It was not on my bingo card either, and it was an amazing experience. And what year is this? Is this Kim Jong-un or is this his dad? This is uh, 2012 or 13. Fuck me, that might be Kim Jong-un, honey. These two, Charlotte and James, are these curators in the UK, and they have done these things called art diplomacy. So they did this Francis Bacon exhibition in Moscow, and they took Gilbert and George to Beijing. And they wanted to take a a Western artist to North Korea. And that had never happened before. And the North Korean government said, yes, let's do it. Come on. And so this was the trip to recce the whole thing and to get the agreements in place with the North Korean government to film it because, you know, you're not normally allowed in. And I think it's very rare in life you can go somewhere that is completely non-Western, you know, I mean, just completely alien. You know, there were no shops, there was no traffic. It was like being on another planet. And, And also you arrive at the airport and they take away your laptop and your phone. And you just collect it when you go back? Yes, yes, when they let you out, which you hope they do. (laughs) But it was interesting because, you know, I don't know if this happens to you, but people are always on me about being on my phone. 
just not having it was um that was that was hard <laughs> it's like rehab but like north korea yeah it was so did you stay in pyong yes pyongyang and there's two hotels where they put all the foreigners and you have minders with you 24/7 and they actually sleep next to you not in the same bed in the same room in the like the next door room do you have to share a bathroom with them no you had your own bathroom but they they would miraculously appear. Like you'd go downstairs in the morning for breakfast and suddenly they would appear. They kind of knew your every movement. Were they nice? Like, would they be like, oh, are you having a nice time? They were very sweet. They they didn't go in for a lot of flippancy. They didn't tell a lot of jokes. And we kept saying, oh, can we, can we go shopping? Because we wanted to get souvenirs. And they eventually took us to a, a, a shop, but it was the strangest shop. We went in and all the lights were out and... We went back to the back and the most amazing thing was the wrapping paper that they wrapped up the art that you bought in. And I was like, please, can I buy some of that? Because it was very pop art, you know? I mean, it's amazing. And there's these huge monuments because there's not a lot of buildings and it's not very dense in an urban sense or, or a lot of traffic. You know, it's just very sparse. Every now and then you'll come on all these massive monuments that are just, because there's, they're so big and everything else is so small. It's, it's kind of gobsmacking. Did you go outside the city or was it more just like in the city? No, we didn't go outside of the city. They took us to farms, fruit farms and collectives. And the whole idea was to set up the exhibition of, the, of this artist. The paintings he did were really cool. They were close-ups of McDonald's cartons and wrapping. So they were like, you looked at them and they were sort of abstracts because they were basically white, but with like a bit of red or blue or yellow and a little glimpse of the golden arches. Very abstract. And the North Korean curator lady didn't like them at all. She looked at them and then said, um, would it be possible to bring a different artist? And, and we were like, well, uh, no, but what's, you know, and we said, well, there isn't enough paint on the canvas. And and all their art is very representational. And nine times out of 10, it's the dear leader doing something because they believe that art should not necessarily be self-expression. They believe that art should express the collective communal idea. Conceptual stuff, no. I mean, it's like, you know, my child could paint that. And I realized that it's actually because, you know, in the West, we have everything. We have access to anything, any technique, any material. So our art is conceptual. We're always looking for meaning and often not finding it. We're looking for meaning in things. But in North Korea, it is about the skill and the artistry and the execution. Even the soldiers in the armies can make beautiful pictures out of tiny snails, 5,000 snails arranged in a beautiful picture of the dear leader. It's just completely <laughs> night and day. And I'm almost done with the random North Korea questions, but did you have like a TV in your hotel room or no? There was a TV in the hotel room. It was very old. And as I recall, it was really only one channel, state channel. And they have a sort of version of MTV that are these songs, um, sort of patriotic songs about the nation state uh, or, you know, a song called My Name Is Not Important. And it's all beautiful footage of people in fields or working in factories or the dear leader visiting. I mean, it's 
My name is not important. Yes. Uh, Remember Not My Name is, I think, the name of the song. Damn. Yeah, a stirring song because it's everybody's working for the greater good, in theory. So, like, what did traveling to North Korea really, like, reveal about American culture and America's media landscape for you? Well, it did do a bit of a number on me in the sense that I, I know in the West we read about the, you know, the awfulness of living in North Korea. And there's no question it, it must be very, very hard. But it was, it was so interesting talking to North Koreans because they genuinely felt sorry for us. You know, I think we went in being slightly patronizing. And when they were sort of apologizing to us, we were like, oh, no, you don't have to say sorry because there isn't much to buy in your shop. And they were like, no, we're sorry for you because you have so much. You have everything that you know the value of nothing, you know, and that that they had such conviction about loyalty to the leader and the sense of the greater good. It was interesting to see that our in the West, our sense of community seems to be being eroded and that we don't really feel that way, you know? I'm not saying by any means that theirs was the right system, but it was a, a shock to the system to see people who genuinely don't believe in our system, you know? They don't, yeah. It, it's not that they're deprived of it, which they are, but they genuinely think it is decadent and spiritually lost. We need to do a North Korean episode is what I'm realizing. North Korea, honey, writing it down for later because that is interesting. Okay. There's a film. I will send you a link. It's called Propaganda and it's it's on YouTube. It's by a a director called Slava Mogatin. And you watch it and you think it's made by North Korea. You think it's a North Korean piece of propaganda. And it begins with scenes from the Oprah show, the Favorite Things episode, with the audience screaming and shouting. And the voiceover says, you know, why are these people screaming? Are they having a religious breakthrough? No, they're being given sneakers. And it's this very clever sort of invective against advertising and commercialism. And and it goes on and on. It's fake. It's not made by North Korea, but it's a fabulously, brilliantly observed satire. I I just think you would love it. I know I would love it. I'm obsessed already. Okay, so now let's go to what I know so many people want to talk about and we are also wanting to talk about. Your creative partnership with RuPaul and Drag Race. So, I mean, I remember watching Drag Race season one with breathlessness. Like, I've been watching from uh, the beginning. Have always loved. I mean, I remember in, like, the earliest seasons, like, all of my girlfriends in L.A., we would, like, all watch it together. We, like, also, when I was in rehab, after the meeting, I'd be like, we must haul ass back. Drag Race is starting. Like, I got everyone to Drag Race and rehab both times. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So, I, and then I just, like, went back into my North Korea. So, I'm like, so North Korea, I'm like, wait, no, we're past <laughs> that part. So, what's the significance of Drag Race now airing on MTV, a network whose history you explore in the book? Yeah, I mean, Drag Race began on Logo. God bless Viacom for even launching a gay channel. And Logo was a, was a small cable channel. And I think, to some degree, the secret of Drag Race's success is that it was such a small channel and the budget was so tiny that 
no one thought to cancel it, you know, like, because the first couple of seasons, it was very quiet. And, but word of mouth gradually spread. And then there was a leadership change and in came Chris McCarthy and it moved to VH1, which is around the same time had the first Emmy campaign. And that's when the show really took off. And VH1 has been, you know, Rue had his talk show on VH1. We did 100 episodes with Rue and, and Michelle Visage on VH1 in the 90s. So VH1's been really good to us, but it's unbelievably exciting that the show is on MTV because MTV is this, it's just this global brand, right? It's the channel that changed the world. And I believe, you know, now it can reach more people. You know, the, the majority of the audience, Drag Race, does not identify as gay. Mm. And the, the majority of the audience is, is also women. So it's a um, counterintuitive in some ways, I suppose. Yeah. So and it, now it's like Drag Race is international. It is all over the world. What's it been like to take it international? And what's distinct about some of the TV markets that you have found Drag Race in? Drag has existed forever, you know? And I think drag is in every country. There's a drag community in every country. And what's so fascinating is how it's just all slightly different in every country. You know, I'm speaking in generalizations, which isn't good. But, you know, in Thailand, for example, a lot of people assumed, why didn't you make Drag Race Thailand earlier? Because they said, you know, because the ladyboy tradition, surely it's accepted. And that is true, except that drag and ladyboys, they're not necessarily discriminated against, but they don't have social status. That has been what is the, the challenge in getting it onto TV. And so Perry, the, the amazing guy who came to us and said, we got to do Drag Race Thailand, you know, he wanted to change that perception that, that, that drag was not seen as, as fashion, you know. So in every culture, it's it's different. And that's that's just endlessly fascinating. And have you found anything that's been, like, consistent about, like, drag race? Like, between, like, Australia... Because you guys are, like, in, like, Australia, Spain, Canada, Thailand, United Kingdom, like, where else? All over Europe. Mexico. Yes. Sweden. Belgium. i tell you what's consistent. The talent, honey. Well, the talent is bottomless. I don't know if bottomless is the right. I feel like it's full of bottoms and tops <laughs> and verses, which is great, but it's yes. endless. There's like an endless well of talent you could pull from one That's, could say. Thank you. Yes. Also, though, I think the key of any drag is there's a wink to it, a sense that it is play. That's the whole idea. Like nothing is what it seems. And that, you know, as Rue says, you know, you're born naked and the rest is drag. Everything we put on is a statement about our identity or some desire to be something, you know, to create an, an image. And drag is, is, is doing that in a spirit of play. It's like a, a joke that everybody is in on. And I think that's why it's, as a medium, it's perfect for these this really polarized, complicated time we're living in, because it's so affirmative of, of like, 
yeah, do yourself, do your thing, be who you want to be. It's fun. It's joyous. Celebrate it. And, and perhaps that's why certain groups in our society have such a problem with it and are trying to ban it and outlaw it because it, because they want to crush that joy. They want to crush that freedom because they perceive it mistakenly as some kind of threat. So how do you see as a way that we can resist these fucking conservative lawmakers that are trying to limit drag performance and ban it outright in some cases? Yeah. I, I mean, well, register to vote. Vote. I mean, I really do think that if all of us were voting, it would be a very different story. I watched a minute-long TikTok today on the significance of Avril Lavigne dating Tyga and I watched it with bated breath. If all of these people on TikTok were as concerned about anti-trans and anti-drag and anti-gay legislation as they were with keeping up on the TikTok drama of Avril and Tyga or the TikTok drama of like Selena Gomez and Haley fucking Bieber, etc., we would be so much better off if we could just get as interested in what is actually affecting our lives. But I do think that it is also a lot of like the cis allies. It's the people who consume drag race. It's the people who consume Queer Eye that are down to sit there and binge it for six hours, but then aren't down to talk to a family member for 20 minutes or maybe send, you know, reach out to a local or state representative if they live in one of these states in question. I can understand the detachment, though. I can understand the detachment because I think the political process is a minority of people. We are in this situation, in this moment, being manipulated by a few people, you know, who seized control of the of the methods of government and will do anything to to have that power. This is not a reflection of what most people want. But Tennessee, Texas, and Florida, based off of like taking it back to voting, the voter turnout was so bad. For Democrats, Mm. one. Mm. Two, the disenfranchisement of people who have been charged with felonies, whether it was like marijuana possession or, you know, various crimes of survival Mm -hmm. in these states can't vote. So then you have like disenfranchisement of so many people, which is a fucking gigantic problem. But it's like, I do feel like in these states, these conservative-led states, it's like, it's even more than like voting. It's like, we have to make yep. inroads with people. Like we have to make like inroads with people who consume our culture, but don't want to fight for us to be like safe and our children to be safe and like our young people to have safe and not only be safe, but like have opportunities like to build a career and to like exist in the world in like a safe way. Cause they're making it so hard for like young queer people to like exist. I think you, you know, it's a thousand percent. And by the way, have you ever thought about running for office? Because you would be a fabulous and fierce leader, you know? I would be. I have thought about it when I'm like a little bit not right now. Yeah, because I think the, uh, the, the challenge we face is that the political process is being hijacked by a few radical, crazy people. And it's it's not the will of the people. And and you're completely right that we cannot afford to be complacent or detached about it. I don't think nationally, but unfortunately, so many of our queer people are being targeted in like state legislatures where it so is the will of the people. Unless the will of the people starts speaking the fuck up louder. Mm. 
Because, mm. I mean, they have a super majority in Tennessee and a governor who gladly signed this anti-drag legislation into, into law. So, mm. I mean, that was overwhelmingly the will of, like, Tennessee voters. Or at least they were willing to prioritize whatever tax incentives or economic incentives or lifestyle incentives. Like, they were willing to compromise, uh, you know, queer people in service of whatever the priorities mm. of Republicans were in that state. Cause they do have such a yeah. majority. These fuckers hate. Yeah. Yeah. Fuckers. Yeah. It's not good. It's also a distraction, isn't it? It's a, a failure to address uh, issues like the safety of kids in school or jobs or clean water or infrastructure, healthcare. Right. Electric grids here in Texas. It's like, oh, look over there. Let's beat up on the drag queen. Let's outlaw trans people. It's really, it's let's beat up on the kids that you've been beating up on your whole life. Because that's what I realized recently that Mm -hmm. like a lot of these lawmakers, they're my age and they have been bullying people like me since they were fucking little. And now they are holding the reins of power and they are doing the same shit. They're proliferating the same shit. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boeber are like not that much older than me. So it's like interesting that, you know, it's like these people who've been bullying the fuck out of people their whole lives. Like now they're, they've done it all the way, you know, to political mm. office. So uh, let's change the subject a little bit. Uh, let's just associate. Yeah. <laughs> Who was your favorite guest judge in drag race history? Oh God, I can't say that. Benton, top three. Tell me right this instant. (laughs) No, I won't. I won't. I won't. (laughs) The story that I always tell, and it's not like, oh, I'm just playing my tapes. Roxy, when... She tells that story when she, they just done the lip sync with Alyssa, Roxy and Alyssa. Yeah. And this sob. And Rue's like, what's wrong? And Roxy's like, nothing. And like, Rue's, no, what's wrong? Tell me. And then when she tells, I have two kids, you know, I have two beautiful, amazing kids, 16 and eight. And when Roxy tells a story about her mother, leaving her at a bus stop, just abandoning her, uh, I, uh, it just destroys me every time, which I know isn't like, well, why are you telling that story? Okay, wait, how about this? How about this? How about this? <laughs> Was there a time, has there ever been a time where like Michelle and another judge or like Carson and Michelle or like Ross and Michelle and the guest are all like firmly like team one person. And, but then Rue's always like, you know, like the decision is mine and mine to make alone. Like, is there ever a time when like, like every, all three are like against, but then Rue's like, no bitch, it's my fucking show. And then like, she is like the overturning one or do they usually all align? There has never been the time of which you speak. There's never. There never has, no. They Ah. don't always completely align. It's never been once against Everyone against ah, So usually pretty aligned jury decisions. Yes. Love that. I think one of the greatest aspects of RuPaul's Drag Race is that ultimately it is Ru's decision. Because I think that, you know, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. I think it takes someone particularly strong. I can't think of anyone, actually, who is happy to do that job of making the very tough choice to send someone home. 
because everybody's a nice person and I think everybody would love everybody to stay around. And I, I, I love Rue for many, 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 many reasons, but I, the, the strength with which he takes on the responsibility and then subsequently a lot of the heat for making the ultimate decision is amazing to me because it's on some of the other drag races, international versions, you know, it's more like a, a group decision and no one wants to be the one to send someone home. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough job. My favorite TV commercial line, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. I'd forgotten about that since the 80s, but Frank Perdue, the chicken rearer, used to say it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. And I would say, you know, it takes a tough man to decide who to eliminate on track race. Okay, Vincent, are you ready? And I saw Rue yeah. successfully answer this question on TikTok, but the asker had to like ask her like four times. Okay, are you okay. ready? Oh, God. And she did fucking no answer. Pressure. So, no well, pressure. there is pressure. Jesus. And I want to hear your goddamn answer. And don't you dare not answer me. Okay, I'm you ready? I'm sweating, actually, with okay. anxiety. Yes. Who do you think in all of Drag Race history is most deserving of having been a winner, but did not win their season? Oh, good God. Oh, Rue answered. And if you really don't feel comfortable, it's fine. We won't include it in the episode, but I need to know your answer. Like, and I also think everyone else really wants to know Fenton. And then I'll tell you who she said. Um, yeah. Okay. Pangina. In UK versus the world. Wow. Not on my bingo card. No, Pangina was amazing. I loved her. She made me cry really hard. She made me cry really hard. Her elimination was devastating. And also her costume was amazing. It was. And do you know what? Her elimination was the making of her and the making of Blue Hydrangea. Do you know? Uh, like Blue Hydrangea, honey. Yes. <laughs> okay, wait. Do you know who Rue said? Yeah, no, I don't. I Rue said Shangela. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, power to Rue for answering that. That's a difficult question. That is, yeah. yeah. I think I saw it on Shangela's Instagram. I think that's where I saw it now. That I, I mean, in it. the world of deep fakes, how can you know that that really happened? That's true. <laughs> Maybe I just yeah. fooled you into doing an answer that, like, that Rue never even answered. Yes. No, it was like, like yeah. but I did think that was like, I did think, and then also like, didn't Manila Luzon never win? I think you're right. I think she's I, another like I, major standout for me that like mm, is deserving of mm. being a winner that like has what it takes and like didn't necessarily. But you know, look, it's a cliche, but I do think everyone who goes on Drag Race is a winner. You oh, know? God. I, it's like it's like yeah. it's like Lizzo says, if you got nominated for an Emmy, honey, you're already a fucking winner, baby. So it's like exactly. it's like it's so true. A hundred percent. But you do just get really fierce as a viewer, you just get really like no, I mean, I tell a joke in my stand-up about how, like, I accidentally, like, tell Russian teenagers to go fuck themselves, like, because they're trying to take the gold medals from our girls, like, in gymnastics. Like, yes. I'm never yes. about being mean or hateful unless it comes to a foreigner trying to take a gold medal from, like, one of our American girls. But I'm working on it, so it's good to be aware. But I notice that that ugliness comes out in me when I also watch Drag Race, especially in my earlier 20s. I was a little bit, I didn't have the clarity. I got a little bit uh, identified. So back in the day, and this is true because I come from a broadcasting family, and when my 
uh, great grandfather bought the first TV station in my family's broadcasting company. People said he was fucking crazy. They were like, you're going into debt to like buy this. Like you shouldn't be doing that. Like you have radio and newspaper and like, this is a flash in the pan, but it, it did end up being the next big thing. So what do you think is the next big thing? I, I think that's a really good question. And I, in all honesty, I have no idea. I mean, it took me this long to figure out that television has changed our lives and that this medium's almost 100 years old. I do think that the next big thing will be a continuation of the same thing, which is screens. You know, people say we t- spend too much of our time, our lives in front of screens. Yeah, maybe we do, but we are going to spend more of our time in front of screens, not less. And that, you know, as much as we watch TV today, as much as we're on our phones or our laptops, it's, it's only going to be more and more and more. There is no limit to that. And now, of course, it isn't just TV. It's TikTok. It's Instagram. It's social media. So, okay, we're finishing up. <laughs> Rapid fire. Are you ready? TV show that people would not expect that you watch. I don't know. I don't know that one. Do you watch Gardner's oh. World or something? Oh, oh, yes, the repair shop. Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. I love the repair shop. You know, I love that bring yes. things in. It makes me yes, cry. The repair shop. Favorite infomercial of all time. Stop the insanity. Susan Powder. Ah, uh, okay. Favorite award show moment. The slap. I mean, uh. a terrible thing to have happened, but the ultimate reality moment. I, I think on reality TV ever. Yeah. Mine, I am going to say mine there. I have like a two way tie. It's between Steve Harvey, wrong Miss Universe, or wrong Best Picture. Favorite TV catchphrase? Nationwide is on your side. Oh my God. I love that. Dream interview subject for a wow documentary, living or historical? Alexander the Great. Ooh, moment in queer history you'd have liked to witness. Stonewall. Ah, I would have liked to have watched Abraham Lincoln like fuck another man if it was true. Because they say that he was gay. Oh, I see. I thought it had to be a public moment. I Oh, I see. Well, just oh at a queer gosh. moment, and my mind went there. because well, it definitely would have to be someone doing, yeah, some, <laughs> like some gay shit, somewhere. like some gay, some gay ass Well, sex. that's why I said Alexander the Great, because I think there was a lot of Hot gay, gay stuff sex going on while he was yes honey and if mm. i would have been alive in 1860 i would have been like the best side chick for lincoln ever like i would have like been down with mary honey i would have like been mary todd and i would have been like this honey and i would have i just i would have totally let abraham lincoln fuck me oh for you know peace. I do think there's a connection between politics and sex that you should explore more. It's so true. Mm. What is wrong with people? We are just nightmares. Okay, final question. (laughs) What advice do you have for people looking to express themselves through creative projects and find their creative community? Just do it. Like, what is so exciting about today, the most exciting thing about today is, is you can. I mean, the phone is such a powerful piece of technology. Camera, video, you can shoot. I mean, it, I, I do think it is just do it. It's a very, it's a, it's a Nike slogan, I know, but it's also a punk thing. It's just go do it. It doesn't, you don't need a lot of money. You don't need someone else's permission. Just do it. And Tim Bailey, we love you 
so fucking much. Your new book is out. You guys read it. We will include a link in the bio so that you can read it. It is so good. We love you so much. Fenton, you're slaying. Do you need to say anything else? Did I cut you off or anything, darling? I need to say thank you and I love you. And I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. We love you too. And I can't wait to see you at South by. Oh, we have to do Getting Curious season two. Well, we will do that. We are, that is already on my calendar. So we got it down. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Fenton Bailey. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. It's kind of hard to find it on there. You know, you got to go find like on the Spotify or the Apple or the wherever. It's like, how do you find it? So just you know, show your friend, show your parents. We love them. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Julie Carrillo. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.